related. Those two Hold things. Hold on, close, are- closer to the mic, closer to the mic. This is Sex with Ghosts, and I'm Bridget here with my best, most faithful friend, Molly. And we're doing a very crazy topic today Luther Blyset. I think that's how you say it. That's not how I was saying it in my head, but I have also never heard it said out loud. Were you saying it Blyset? Yeah. That would actually make more sense because they're Italian. I'll go over why I chose this group because that's right. I chose the topic this week and next week. This is going to be a two-part series. My introduction to this group was from watching the documentary series this past week, Q Into the Storm, which aired on HBO. And at some point, which we'll get into, Luther Bleset was a group whose name came up as a possible QAnon starter. And while watching this documentary, uh, this group touched all the things that kind of make me gush as a human, which we got conspiracy, we have art, and we have this QAnon connection. So, of course, I went down a rabbit hole of now I need to know more about this group. Have you seen the doc? I haven't, but I've been uh, told that I must watch it. So you're saying they mentioned the group, but they concluded in the documentary that it definitely wasn't them? Yeah, that's why I kind of brought up if you've seen the doc and the person who told you you must see it is exactly right. I actually put off watching it because I did a Google search, just like a cursory, is this worth watching sort of search, right? Because QAnon is this mysterious figure. And the last thing I want to do is devote any time towards watching a documentary that is just like, oh, all these weirdos are into this thing. I already listened to QAnon Anonymous, which I've mentioned to you. And they talk a lot about these sort of QAnon structures and what's happening in that world. I was like, I don't need to watch a documentary on top of this. But then it was like this documentary was following me. Like the things I was already sort of engaged with were also saying you should watch this documentary. So finally I watched it. It gives a very good insight into how the group operates how it became a big 8chan thing and the people who are behind it. And it's interesting is that when I did the Google search, because I was like, am I nuts? Did I make up this Google search results? And I researched it and there still are sources who are like, I don't know, it's kind of vague or the auteurs going down these rabbit holes. And I'm like thinking these people for some reason do not want to give credence to this doc, which is super weird, or they didn't watch the last episode. (laughs) It didn't make sense. Like 538 had a terrible review of it where they were just like, followed a bunch of rabbit holes. And what can you do when you're talking to QAnon people all day? And I was like, this guy literally set up a very good case for who is probably the people who are creating QAnon. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Like, it's insane that a 538 article would be very dismissive of that. And I also, without even providing exactly why they're dismissive of it. And now I'm just like, I'm so done with 538. Still from the 2016 election when they said Hillary was going to win. And then being dismissive of this documentary that I think is one of the most important documentaries series in the past 10 years when we see how this thing has affected American politics and culture. So that's my soapbox moment. Plug for the documentary. Just to bring this up, because I know it's going to come up later on for other things. How much do we, when watching the documentary, did you feel like this guy was fact-checking things? Did you, did you tell yeah, the the QAnon anonymous guys are actually in the doc. Oh. Before then, even like a lot of things in my universe were like, you should watch this doc. 
And then when the QAnon Anonymous guys were in it, and then they even talked about it and had great things to say about it on their podcast, I was like, oh, if these guys are kind of like the forefront, more progressive people who are approaching this and who are exploring the origins of this conspiratorial thinking and the implications that it has on our society. Like they're very thorough. So that was like, oh, if these guys are somehow involved and are saying like, we're happy with how this turned out, then there must be a lot of credence to it. And then watching it, you're watching this guy interact with an incredible amount of people who are both the creator of 8chan, the people who took over 8chan. He's talking to people who have these YouTube channels. So people who are like kind of key people in promoting these ideas. He did a lot of this work and almost literally with like no funding. And he talks about it and... I'm also like, how much of this am I going to keep in? I'm trying to yeah, like yeah. give you the short answer of the sure. <laughs> complicated question. Because of his initial lack of funding, I think that gave him more credence to these people because he wasn't showing up with like a full news crew sponsored by a channel. He was a guy who showed up with just him and his camera or maybe him in like a somebody looking for intern experience to film these interviews. And he came in saying like, look, I support the freedom of speech. That is something I believe in. And that's a huge thing with a lot of these QAnon people, right? Is the idea of being able to say what, what they want to say and be able to say it publicly. The freedom of speech is a huge cornerstone of this movement because you know, what's what's the biggest thing you always hear about these guys? It's like YouTube censored me, yeah, Twitter's yeah. censoring me, the mainstream mainstream media is censoring all of us. So this guy's coming in with basically no funding, so no crew, no sponsorship, saying, I'm just trying to make a documentary about free speech, and it coincides with this QAnon movement. And so people were willing to open up and speak to him on those sort of thoughts and feelings. So he's talking to people that are deep into it. And I think because he's taking this non-biased approach and really just trying to find this sort of truth to everything, I think people become really trusting of what he's doing. And as for like the reveal of who he thinks QAnon is and how he got close to those people, I think that happened over... Because this documentary series is filmed from probably late 2017, early 2018 until this whole insurgence. And he's there with, you know, these people he's been talking to for three years. So I think over three years, he really formed a relationship with these people that even when the case he presents of who he thinks QAnon is, is so compelling and so good that even though they're denying a lot of what they're saying. Right, yeah, yeah. He asked them several times, you know, do you think this person is behind QAnon? Sure. Are you behind QAnon? Sure, yeah, yeah. And the answers they give are always like, oh, no, no, it's not me. Or I I wouldn't know. You know, I barely, I barely follow QAnon. And these are people who are running the 8chan boards where – QAnon is driving all of their internet traffic. And on top of that, they have other enterprises such as a news channel that live streams from Manila called Goldwater. So you're like, oh, you just happen to name your news channel Goldwater. There's a lot of very obvious contradictions to the things that they're saying. Okay. So I trust his research. I trust the work he's put in. I still think there's a lot of questions like what's Flynn's tied to this group? What is Roger Stone's tied to this group? What is Steve Bannon's tied to this group? Because if there's anything, there's an overlapping ideology mm -hmm. or I public ideology. So while they claim to have no relationship with those men, they are definitely using each other. Yes. And how explicit is that? I don't think that ever necessarily gets completely answered in the documentary. There's speculation 
but it's never, there's never any explicit ties. And when you look at the person who's actually making the post, it's got to be someone who's probably younger and understands the internet, which uh, I got to say, I don't think Roger Stone is probably that gifted. No, I highly doubt that. I want to ask before we start, because you also did research on this after I picked this wonderful topic to go down. If you had any anything that stood out to you or any thoughts or feelings about this group. There is so much. It, this was a, so interesting looking into, but I did not know about this group at all. And that's always interesting to me because it's like a huge international phenomenon that I mean I was alive in the 90s I I was a young child so maybe I wouldn't have caught it maybe I was just the wrong age but it's just kind of weird when you go back and read about this very large movement yeah and I do think some of it after doing research has definitely been censored to Americans not necessarily like explicitly censored by our government but largely ignored by our media yeah and there's definitely a few reasons that i have that we can speculate as to why but it does feel like a lot there's a lot of parallels with today and italy in the 90s yeah definitely definitely and i think that's something that will probably come up as we talk about this a lot because the parallels are very compelling yes definitely I do want to throw out there to the reader. We already started by Googling how to say preset and we don't speak Italian. So please excuse our pronunciations. And I also want to credit this book that I found a lot of my information from because when you Google this group, it's honestly really hard to find a lot of English articles related to this group that I feel like fully represents this group. The British media that covered this group, the articles I found were dismissive of what the group was doing. So like it didn't really give you information. It was just like, oh, these guys were assholes on a train. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, here's what's the meaning behind it and why they're doing it. And here's the greater idea. And so I just wanted to say to say this been a really great resource and actually found it going through the Luther Lisette's website because they definitely write from a very almost chaotic revolutionary way of writing Mm -hmm. that also feels very biased. And so I felt a really good source to kind of find what is actually happening was improper names, collective pseudonyms from Luddites to Anonymous. And this was written by Marco Deseris. His book covers many collectives that are similar to this, but his book did a really great job of contextualizing what was happening at the time and what was significant about these events. That makes sense to me. This is going to be a little bit of a teaser for our next episode. I thought it was a little bit easier to find English sources about Wu Ming. And I imagine that's because it was literary in nature as opposed to art. Yeah, I feel like Wu Ming's mission is similar still to the original Luther Blissett's, but definitely very literature focused and getting out those same ideas, but instead of in a demonstrative way in a here, you have to pick up a book or a pamphlet. Yeah, yeah. So that being said, let's jump into who the fuck these guys are. I wanted to start with a quote from the Blisset website, which is, I felt like a very beautiful and epic way of describing themselves or the origin, which is in 1994, Hundreds of European artists, activists, and pranksters adopted and shared the same identity. They called themselves Luther Blisset and set to raising hell in cultural industry. It was a five-year plan. They worked together to tell the world a great story, create a legend, and give birth to a new kind of folk hero. Now, their name comes from a famous footballer at the time, a soccer player for us dumb Americans. And this guy, he was one of the few black players at the time. He has no connection to the group whatsoever. And the group has never really clarified as to why they chose his name. It comes up a lot. There's a lot of mythical stories, but a lot of the things that kept pointing to those reading from 
group members of the Luther Blissett Collective was that no one really has the answer. So yeah. like even the myths aren't necessarily true. And another note, the actual real Blissett has endorsed the group in interviews and has said it's an honor to have something like that named after him. So they do have his blessing, which I don't think would have uh, stopped them from using it. <laughs> no, no. But the writing seemed to imply that the idea that he was the, I think I read first black player in Italy, yeah, was a much bigger deal than than we might think of now. And so it was more of a watershed moment and naming your group after that would make sense. Yeah. And I think uh, I either read or saw an interview with Set where he mentioned that as this is probably why. And by using his name, so you have like the first black player of Italy, plus this very prominent myth-making art collective, that's just going to like add to its mythicalness. Yeah, I agree. So this group is really known for its series of hoaxes. And they actually had a lot of hoaxes because the name Luther Blyset was for anyone to use. There wasn't a formal hierarchy. The idea was we're activists and this is a name you can use for your activism. But we will be talking about some more specific hoaxes that kind of inform more of like what's going on now and one of our favorite topics, satanic panic. That is definitely true. So this group did start with just like a handful of artists and it did grow to include many activists and a lot of new artists. And there were three main groups, one in Rome, one in Bologna, and one in Vitrobo. And they also had smaller groups throughout Europe. Like I said, they were operating under this one identity, and this created a stronger collective and prevented the group from splintering, as in previous artistic movements would be similar like the Neoist. The Neoist was an art movement in the late 1970s and early 80s, and it refers to a specific subculture network of artistic performance and media experimentalists and more generally to a practical underground philosophy. It operated with collectively shared pseudonyms, identities, pranks, paradoxes, plagiarism, and fakes, and has created multiple contradicting definitions of itself in order to divide the categorization and historization, which is very much something that you will see in the Luther set. Yes, I definitely saw that a lot. And just to explain it blatantly, is the idea that one identity is better than multiple pseudonyms and identities because then you're automatically one group and then you couldn't divide into separate groups based on the individual identity that you're using? Sort of. So the group is heavily influenced by Marxism. And I wouldn't necessarily label them as Marxists. I would say they definitely use ideology to create these hoax and these collective works. So a huge idea of Marxism is the identity and the role that's being played. So a lot of things you hear in Marxism and socialism is that there's a power as a collective versus power as an individual. That's why unions are per se like a huge part of Marxism, because if all the workers are agreeing that this is how we're going to work under these terms, they're going to have more sway than say like five guys who want an hour long lunch break. The idea is you're going to be more powerful as a large group and as a community. And part of the reason like I wouldn't say that they're purists in the form of Marxism is because they also work to identify or progress sort of Marxist ideas. So one of the things that they realized and is shown in some of their works is per se in Marxism, okay, everyone has a job and that job is going to be functional for everyone. So you have like a dairy farmer 
you have a postal worker, you have an industrial worker, you have all these occupations. And one of the things that the group explored and talked about, and we won't go too deep into, well, for the most part, we won't go too deep into, we're, we're starting to account for other services that human provides that Marxism neglected. So like, for instance, sex workers, sex workers are people and they do have a function in a society. And there's something to say for people who are also raising children, they have a function in society. And so the idea is it's not necessarily all about tangible services mm -hmm. that make up humanity. There's also like this human service that we provide each other. And that's a service we should gain some sort of income for. So that's one of the ideas that they've written about and explored is like, just by wearing a t-shirt that has like a brand name on it, shouldn't I get a, a check or a payment for doing that because I am promoting this idea or this brand. So they kind of, they take Marxism a step further. And they've also have rejected the title of anarchy. And I think we can kind of go more into that, especially in part two. And the reason being because they, there's some evolution and this is sort of specifically a five-year time period that we're going to be talking about in most of part one. And there's the mythical story that they knew from the beginning, like we are going to form this art group in 1994 and then we're going to publish this book in 1999 and that's going to be the end of it. But it's really not that simple mm -hmm. or cut and dry. And, and we'll definitely cover some of that. And just kind of mention like the influence, if, if this is in your realm at all, because I thought this was interesting, but I also was an art major. <laughs> some of the neoist and even the Luther said. People who are going to influence them are is futurism, Dada, Fluxus, and punk. And there's also like a male art network, which is M-A-I-L, which will come up a little bit, but to kind of also explain, Luther Bleset is the name, the all-encompassing name. But in their hoaxes, they also use names of other artists that have either already existed or creations of other artists. So are we ready to start with the first hoax? I just have one comment. It seemed to me when I was reading about it was also that Luther Bulisset was also trying to defy categorization. And yes. Okay. Yes, yes. That That's a huge part of their thing too, for sure. Right. So you can't really, they're influenced by lots of things. And I also wouldn't call them Marxists or anarchists. Yeah, I, I would look at it as more of those influences I listen off or talking about Marxism. These are more like tools in their belt. Like they're definitely have a very progressive ideology, but I don't think it's one that has been necessarily hugely explored in Western society right now. And I think a large part of that is because of how more leftist ideas are traditionally seen as evil. Sure. That's a whole other thing. But, you know, the McCarthy era really destroyed any sort of progressive ideas about communism for Americans. Sure. I just also kind of want to mention, I mean, I could be wrong, but in my experience, no one on the left is trying to bring about Marxism as it was written. Like, that's insane. Well, there definitely are leftists who are around now who probably consider themselves like some sort of purist Marxist. Oh, really? Wow. It, it is very difficult. And one of the things that comes up in Luther Blissett, which is we're at the information age, right? So Marxism had a lot of strength before because 
a lot of our economy and society revolved around the industrial revolution. And now we're at a time of a digital revolution, right? So that also changes some of these Marxist ideas. Right. And how do they apply to a different sort of economy? I feel like that it's both dumb on their part and fake because that isn't pure Marxism then. You're changing it. Yeah. As someone who is a fan of this sort of stuff, I'm hesitant to trust anyone who is a pure Marxist. But I recently heard an interview with Chris Hedges. That's a fun rabbit hole to go down if you're into progressive politics, if you don't know who he is. He is a guy who I believe he worked on the first Ralph Nader campaign. He's a very progressive guy. He's someone that leftists talk to a lot and refer to a lot. And he publishes a lot of great articles about progressive politics. He actually used to write for the New York Times. And then because in the early 2000s, he was against the war in Iraq, the New York Times actually fired him. He had a really good point in the interview that I heard, which was, it's important to know Marxism and to read it. But to like consider yourself a Marxist, yeah, it's not, and this is me saying this, not him, but being a Marxist, like we said, it's not as relevant to now because of the change, because we're headed towards a digital feudalism. But it is important to understand the concepts, I think, of Marxism because workers and humans should have rights. Sure. Kind of like we've talked about in the past, I would Personally, Molly would prefer to take away the term Marxism because people have made it a boogeyman when really all we need to do is get this shit done. But that's a story for a different day. <laughs> Branding, baby. So we'll start with the the first hoax that I have listed here. So this is kind of like the first big hoax that they did, but not necessarily the one that got them the big media attention. So in January 1995, Chi La Visto, an Italian primetime TV show devoted to finding missing persons, received pieces of Harry Kipper. And when you say pieces, you mean body parts? Okay, so I tried to cross-check yeah. what pieces meant, and I didn't find anything. Okay, wow. So maybe that's like a either a future note or an editing. We just accept it. Very interesting. Uh, so allegedly... And this is allegedly a British artist went missing in the mid-90s during a bicycle ride through Europe spelling the word art. And so I believe the idea was he went missing while he was doing the T. Here he got the A and the R down. All right. And so the TV show was connected with a radio journalist and a male artist, Pier Mario Chiani, who claimed to see the missing artist in Bertiolo, in northeastern village in Italy. And so the TV crew goes there and then they meet someone who tells them that they got to go to London to see Kipper's apartment. So at this point, I think once they go to see the apartment, they're not really learning anything new. And for whatever reason, this does not air on TV. And I'm speculating maybe it was clear that they realized they were just like wasting time and money on this case because this TV show is a show that's actually being funded by the Italian government. So it's like a government news TV show. So after it didn't air and they wasted this time and money, Luther Blissett, the art collective, followed with a press announcement that they were the ones responsible and that Kipper was actually a fictional creation. And like I said, they were dumping tax money into this case without any real evidence of a missing person. So that's, I don't think it was like human parts they were sending. Okay. That's good. That would be weird. They would be like pieces, like probably things they said belonged to him. Okay, so pretty much it all just revolves around the idea that he was fake, but no one bothered to fact check it in the first place. And like I said, a lot of the names in this, this people that they were connecting to were names of artists or pseudonyms of artists. So like Harry Kipper was actually a performance art character created in 1971 by the artist Brian Ruth. 
And this character is actually a pretty like well-known British character, like a lot of TV events. I think they even did an HBO special at some point in time in the 80s. So yeah, like you said, they're not doing the research to like really figure out what this guy's story is. They're just following all these bad leads. So the story that most people are familiar with or kind of gave them an international notoriety, I would say, or what I like to call the famous bus incident. So finding things like on this group, like I said, has been kind of difficult without the help of a book. And a lot of articles that I could find had some telling of this bus incident. And so a lot of it, I read like some down to like one sentence. It was like, oh, all these guys said their name were Luther and they were on a bus. (laughs) So the story is that the LBP, a lot of times that's what Luther Blaisette Project is short for, um, that the acronym I saw a lot. They started radio programs and they'd call it Radio Blaisette. And they would do, one of the programs they would do was called Psychogeography. And the group was able to create events in real time through immediate communication using radios and cell phones, which is pretty new technology or having that combination of technology at this time, right? It's 1995. And the function was to create like a big converge with a predetermined destination in mind. And in Rome, this was like a huge thing. Like people were really into it. And I think that's because out of the three LBP uh, cities I spoke about before, I think Rome was like the one with like the most young people and it's the, the biggest city of the three. So June 15th, 1995, 50 Luthers show up to a bus And they're all carrying confetti, drinks, and portable radios. And every time they get on this bus, they're all using the same bus ticket and claiming to have the same name. So they all get to share the same ticket. And after some time of this, two cops show up. And cops are like trying to ask, you know, who everyone is because they're trying to be pigs. And everyone keeps giving them the name Luther Bleeset. And this leads to the cops firing a couple rounds of shots in the air, which then created a riot. And the whole event then becomes filmed on a cell phone, which is insane because like, I can't even imagine what a 1995 cell phone video would look like. Yeah, for real. That must've been crazy. So out of this whole event for Luther's, were arrested and this gave LBP the press like this really opened it up internationally for people and I believe when they went to their court hearing they all used the name Luther please said I read a couple things about this incident and one of them was that it it was interesting because we're talking about how the media may be covering this and one of the media stories what they called it a hijacking which obviously like gives it a lot more negative connotation to the whole story. And then I had read that the four Luthers that were arrested did give their real name. Well, I'm sure too, if you, if you watch that Amanda Knox case, I don't think Italian cops fuck around. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. It was, it sounded like they, once they were arrested and taken to the jail, they gave their real name. Yeah, they're going to beat the shit out of you. Yeah, and in some of those articles I saw hijacking also described them as anarchists. And if you go to their website, they have a whole statement on like why anarchy is absolutely incorrect name for this group. And I think part of it too is like there isn't an overarching finite political ideology yeah. because that would limit the people who are using your pseudonym. Yeah, and that defeats the whole purpose. I also wanted to mention as a tie-in to some of the things we'll probably talk about later that the psychogeography reminds me a lot of the storming 
of Loch Ness slash Area 51. I think that's a good point because the idea, the idea of how urban spaces are being used is one that has that we now know is politically been used to redline people. And so the psychogeography breaks that up. And kind of the same with like the storming of Loch Ness and Area 51 is really giving the power back to actual people and not to these sort of untouchable areas, I guess. So we're getting some traction between the three cities because they also the other two cities also had their radio programs going on there's other kind of hoax they're working on or pranks and they're kind of making a name but they really start playing with the media with creating this child sex trafficking ring and it also messes with the catholic church where in italy that's probably where the catholic church has the biggest strong arm. And in 1963, the Catholic Church started these rehab centers all over Italy and also in sort of like adjacent Catholic areas. And you have this huge figurehead who's going on TV all the time to talk about it and marching for prohibition and doing these anti-pedophilia rallies, which I don't think aged well. (laughs) For the Catholic Church. Certainly. And what are they rehabbing from? Drugs. Okay. These are drug rehabilitation centers. Sorry. Good question. And so this main figurehead is Don Pierino Gelmini. I would say Don Pierino Gelmini. You think it's a soft G? I think it's a soft G. Okay. So basically this priest is doing all this PR saying like the church is against drugs and against touching children, which... Those two things are not related, just in case you didn't realize. But politically at this time, well, that started in 1963, which looking at pedo cases, I feel like this is good timing. Good timing to be like, no, we're definitely against these things, even though I'm sure there's already a lot of cases. And as we find out, fast forward, a lot of cases even going on then. And the drug thing... Also is a huge conservative idea. A lot of conservative government entities, especially in the 60s and moving forward, are very anti-drug use. Like in the 80s, the Americans declare a war on drugs. But even prior to that, drug use was very much frowned upon, which I mean, I'm not saying drugs are super cool. But the conservative has always kind of had this absolute war against it. And there's a lot of different thoughts on that, going back to pharmaceutical companies, going back to culture. Like a lot of counterculture is related to drug use. So by being anti-drug use makes sense if you're a conservative because the conservative is trying to preserve the culture that's already in place. And the counterculture is trying to test that idea of culture, and that includes drug use. So it definitely makes sense in that context. In a little bit more information, we believe it's prohibition. They want more anti-drug laws? Yes. And I think it's another way of limiting counterculture revolution. Because... In the 50s, that's really when you have a heightened use of heroin because of the Korean War Mm -hmm. and all these things that are going on. But you also have all these artists, all these beat artists. Anyone who's saying fuck the government is also (laughs) saying go ahead and use drugs. Sure. Just to put in context of 1963. Obviously, drugs like heroin are massive problems with addiction. Right, but it shouldn't be, and I'm, I'm speaking from myself, and I think most of these sort of progressive ideas, making it a criminalized act is not the solution we should yes. be looking for. It should be more about education and providing treatments for people who do become addicted. It's not about telling them they're bad and sinful and they deserve to like yes. rot in a prison cell. Right, definitely. So in 1996 kind of jump forward now, a Cambodia man is arrested for child trafficking. And for whatever reason, the LBP sees this as 
a way to sort of exploit and test the media frenzy. And the church does have rehab centers in Thailand. And so a member of the LVP pretends to be Aldo Curioto. I would call him Curioto. Curioto. Uh, no, I'm saying it like an asshole. You're saying it much better than I am. Anyways, which is a spokesperson for this Catholic organization. And they call the main news line with a statement that implicates this priest, Don Pierino Gelmini. There you go. And so he's then bombarded because of this tip that they're asking him all these questions that implicates him and somehow involved in this child sex trafficking ring. You probably don't know the answer to this. But is Aldo Uriodo a real person? I think so. I tried Googling it. A lot of things that came up were in Italian or in ties to this specific incident. Yeah. And it was a way for them to see what the media would do. And the media didn't do any research to see if this priest had any actual ties to this man. They were just like, oh, this is our lead. Let's go with it. Right. So they're already testing basically the recklessness And this storyline that the media wants to create, which is very common right now, that there's a huge sexual pedophilia thing happening. And it's not to say that pedophilia isn't happening. It's the institutions I think we're using to find this specific crime. And what I thought was also interesting is They did this in 1996, before any real big Catholic church reveals happened. Mm -hmm. And what's also interesting is it didn't come up in my research, but I would be interested to know if they kind of knew being raised Italian and around Catholics, like surely they must have known somebody who was touched by the local priest is what I'm saying. And Maybe using this guy specifically, what's not stated in largely of the research I did, but I feel like kind of almost goes without saying, knowing what we know now, that maybe that was part of the strategy without having the proof they would need to make that claim because then you fall into real libel. Whereas what they did pretending to impersonate someone and give it to the media and the media didn't fact check whether or not if this guy is who he said he was. They just said, this guy said that, let's go with it, which is the fault of the media and what they're trying to point out. But it does leave you to wonder if part of that interest and sort of assuming nature is also the fault of the Catholic Church, which as we know now, was definitely molesting children. (laughs) at this time and aware of it and covering it up. Yes, I think that the LBP would know that this would be something that they can exploit because in a similar sense to the Hollywood sex crimes issue where it was an open secret, perhaps that was the same. Yeah, yeah, you can't help but think like they exploited it because of also there's probably some underlining truth to it. Right. And also the idea that the media would be more apt to believe something that has a grain of truth in it. Yeah. Because while this is going on, there are similar cases going on, but affecting more cultists. And we'll kind of get into that right now with the not what I like to call neo-Nazis in the woods. So at the end of 1995, some satanic graffiti and animal sacrifices were making headlines, being like a found within cities and townships. And this gave old LBP some ideas. So in January of 1996, the Viterbo <laughs> branch replicated similar activities within their city and spray-painted satanic messages and swastikas. And so the local paper starts investigating these events and knowing that LBP starts writing in as citizens of the city claiming to have some sort of connection, knowing some sort of connection between the local right-wing government and this made-up Nazi group. So around May of 1996, 
the group found out that an environmental group was going to clean up some nearby woods. So this was a perfect opportunity for them to set up a satanic scene to make it look like a black mass was happening in the woods and it would be discovered by this environmental group. So this is crazy how in-depth these people get. Because after this like horrific discovery by the environmental group, LPP then creates a Catholic coalition of vigilantes to hunt down the Satanists. So they're like playing both sides yeah, of this. Yeah. And they're also pretending to be authentic people. Like nothing's necessarily branded by them yet. Sure. And so in July of 1997, a video emerges of a black mass. And a black mass, if if you're wondering, is essentially like similar to a Catholic mass or so a ceremony, but instead of praising God, you're praising Satan. And a video of that emerges with a screaming virgin. And the video is like in really poor quality. And without doing much much research into the video, the local news plays the video and it goes viral at this time. And then by February of 1997... Oh, that doesn't make sense. I think that was in July. 1996. Yes. And then in February, the equivalent of what I would say is Italian CNN plays this video and calls it like an exceptional document. And on March 2nd of 1997, LBP sends a video to the public news station revealing that the whole thing was basically a hoax. And it shows the so-called Satanists with the so-called virgin holding hands and singing songs. So embarrassed by the whole situation, the local news stopped investigating this satanic facade. And then while this is happening, there's something similar happening with the Bologna branch. In 1996 of May, LBP puts a skull in a luggage locker at a train station and addressed to the skull to the biggest tabloid in Bologna, Il Resto del Carlino. And the skull is signed by Satan hunters, Cacciatori di Santana. <laughs> and the skull is stolen from Satan's children, Bambini di Satana. And that is actually a real satanic sect that is based in Bologna. So... There is truth in that aspect. So the satanic cult does exist. Wow, that's fair. And the tabloid, again, no research, runs the article. And after they run the article, a few days later, LBP sends proof of the fabrication to other local papers. So to give some context about this case in Bologna, in 1996, the tabloid I was talking about led a moral campaign against the Bambini's leader, which got him arrested twice. And in their papers, they had published that he sexually abused a 16-year-old girl and also used a three-year-old in a black mass. Now, this is kind of wild because at the time, it was pretty well known that Marco Dimitri, that was the guy who was head of Satan's children, was very openly gay and the occult that i said did actually exist was a consensual adult cult so there was no pedophilia going on and the claims were baseless so after these hoaxes that the luther set put on they pen a book called let the children pedophilia as a pretext for a witch hunt to show the relationship between the hoaxes, the media coverage, and how the Catholic Church's conservatism helped push the narrative of pedophilia. So they were basically exposing this tabloid and the Catholic Church for their involvement in getting a basically an anti-Catholic guy arrested for crimes he didn't commit. Dang, that's uh, rough. Yeah, they also were sued after that for defamation. And it was court contested. And they said that you had to stop printing the book and they had to pull all the books from the shelves. However, activists reprinted the book online. So supposedly you can still find it on like specific activist websites. 
I didn't search for it, but I'm sure like most things on the internet, it exists somewhere. Yeah. And I think that's probably a good place to stop for part two. What a wild story and so many parallels to the current day that we will have to discuss next week. I mean, you can already see without going into too much, because we're going to talk more about the QAnon connection in part two, but already like this search for pedophiles is a huge narrative in this conservative storyline. Yeah. And just the idea that it is a pretext for a witch hunt also. Yeah. It really shows that of like all of the human crimes that you could commit that calling someone a pedophile probably has one of the the gravest outcomes. And I think it's also incredible because they did this all in a time before the Catholic Church was really outed. I think this is a time when people probably knew people or had an experience with, say, a priest but you didn't really talk about it or do much about it because of the Catholic Church's power and the implications it has to be a victim of such a crime. And so this was all done before even all those layers. Like if you did that now, yeah, there would be even more context, I guess. Right. So yeah, in part two, just kind of give you an idea. We'll talk about where Luther Bleset is now and their connection to QAnon. And I'll give you a little hint. There really isn't one, but I think the information that we have to correlate the two will be interesting. That being said, Molly, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MollyMM9. How about you? You can find me at Bridget underscore suck it. And you can find Sex with Ghost at Sex with Ghost underscore. And we have a Patreon. And I believe next week we have our Patreon hangout where Molly and I will hang out, drink, play some games, shoot the shit. Editor's note. It's next week, May 1st at 4 p.m. Pacific time. And we'll be talking about cults. Rate and review us on Apple if you like what you're hearing. Anything else? Go listen to Bridget's other podcast. Yes, I've started a podcast with Grace, who was on last week. And if you haven't listened to the Loch Ness episode, please do. But yeah, we're doing celebrity gossip, political gossip, any gossip that we can get our hands on. And you can also submit gossip. Oh, and speaking of submissions... Sex with Ghosts has a form you can fill out. Let us know how you think we're doing. This form is just for us to sort of check in with you, our listeners, give you an opportunity to tell us what you like, what you don't like, what to lean into. Definitely. Okay. Well, I think that's a good time to say adios, amiga and amigos, amigex. I don't know. Bye.